Welcome to the second annual Charleston to Charleston Festival. I'm Nathaniel Hepburn, I'm Chief Executive of the Charleston Trust, a charity in Sussex, England, which preserves and shares the internationally important home of the artists Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant and the rural retreat of the wider Bloomsbury Group. 30 years ago, Charleston Trust started one of England's first literary festivals to keep alive those interdisciplinary conversations that took place in the gardens and around the dining table at Charleston Farmhouse. We are delighted to have found a partner in the Charleston Library Society with so many shared values to deliver this transatlantic festival of art, literature, history, ideas, and politics. We have four days of wonderful talks ahead of us, and it's my pleasure to introduce the first event, Bloomsbury Muse, with Regina Mahler and Sarah Milroy, who will be discussing the life and work of Vanessa Bell. I'd like to thank our friend and my counterpart here at the Charleston Library Society, Anne Cleveland and her husband, Will, for sponsoring this event. And to extend my thanks to all of our festival sponsors who have enabled us to bring uh, such amazing speakers here to the Charleston to Charleston Festival. I'm delighted to introduce Vanessa Bell's granddaughter, the social historian Virginia Nicholson, who will be introducing our speakers and chairing this event, Bloomsbury Muse. Please join me in welcoming Regina, Sarah and Virginia. Well, um, it's absolutely wonderful to be back and to see so many familiar faces. I keep glancing around and thinking, oh my God, I must say hello to so-and-so. So marvellous to be back in Charleston. Thank you for welcoming us. Um, so just to tell you very briefly, before we um, start talking about my grandmother, um, who uh, we've invited to come and talk today about her. And there are two people who know a great deal about more, my more about my grandmother than I do myself. <laughs> they are incredibly qualified. So on my right is Sarah Milroy. And Sarah Milroy first um, uh, came, swam across my ken about three years ago um, when she came with the suggestion of running a big London exhibition entirely devoted to the work of Vanessa Bell. And Sarah couldn't be more qualified to do that. She's um, an art critic, a journalist. Um, she's an, an intellectual, an essayist, a curator. And um, as well as curating this wonderful exhibition in 2017 at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London, she's an expert on Canadian art and has done a, a show in London on Emily Carr and has recently, um, we've heard almost a few days ago, been appointed chief curator of the McMichael Canadian Art Collection um, at Kleinberg near Toronto. Um, so um, Sarah is deeply, deeply versed in um, Vanessa Bell's art. Um, Regina Mahler is a much older friend and Regina and I go back a long way. She first came to visit my parents to ask whether she could um, uh, edit my grandmother's letters um, back in the early 1990s. And um, we have here a copy of that book, The Selected Letters of Vanessa Bell. Um, Regina's um, an author, a journalist, and, um, and again, a, a hugely um, informed intellectual who writes for the San Francisco Chronicle, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Review of Books. Um, her field is 20th century modernism. She's also the author of um, a fascinating book called Bloomsbury Pie, The Making of the Bloomsbury Boom, in which she unpacks the emergence of the Bloomsbury industry. Um, with a quite um, acerbic eye and, and pen. Um, she describes my ancestry as being a tenacious and unwieldy cultural phenomenon. So <laughs> we'll be very interested to see um, how she um, speaks about my grandmother today. Luckily, she and I are very close transatlantic friends and have our own selected correspondence. Um, so I'm going to ask Regina to start by talking about 
Vanessa Bell, the woman. Letters. This is, uh, this is a letter that didn't make the cut. So you, uh, uh, we can circulate these and you can see what, a, what an unpublished Vanessa Bell letter looks like. Um, it has a cover sheet. These are Quentin Bell's notes. As he went through all of the Bloomsbury correspondence he could get his hands on before he wrote Virginia Woolf's biography, um, which was published in 1972, he, um, the way he organized things was to, actually it might be your mother's handwriting because she did a lot of it too. Um, <laughs> they, it, was a, it was a form of indexing, but he would attach it to each letter. So um, there's that, and then there's my little note beside it, which just says, good, fairly domestic letter, neo-pagan child rearing, some omega. <laughs> <laughs> The first page is devoted to um, uh, embroidery. <laughs> I'm randomly handing these. There you go. When I got when I got to the Berg collection and looked at my first Vanessa Bell letters, I couldn't read a word. <laughs> so, by the end, it was easy, but I thought, what have I taken on? <laughs> but I mastered the handwriting and a little of her, of her character. And the, I'll give you a potted biography so you have a, a little background in case you're unfamiliar with Vanessa Bell or Bloomsbury. Vanessa Bell was a Miss Stephen. And I'm appropriating a famous first sentence of Quentin Bell's biography of his aunt, Virginia Woolf. The eldest of the four gifted Stephen children, Vanessa was born in 1879 into an affluent, not wealthy, professional family in South Kensington, London. Its roots were in law and the civil service, literature, and to a much lesser extent, art. She became an English post-impressionist painter, a central figure of the Bloomsbury Group, and she pioneered radical experiments in art, relationships, and domestic life. Virginia's written a whole book about this. You can read about her in several novels now, as well as in Frances Spaulding's biography and my volume of her letters. And you can see her portrayed on screen in, in maybe half a dozen movies um, about or around the Bloomsbury Group now. So I will just touch lightly on a few elements of her life and character in my Vanessa Bell alphabet. So, a is for art foremost, and obviously it was her constant preoccupation. Uh, she kept her family and her household and her friend group Aloft, she had always a hundred plates spinning, but in the back was get back to the studio, get back to the studio. And she was thinking about her paintings and the formal aspects especially, because she was a formalist, the formal aspects of her painting were always on her mind. And another, I have another couple other A's, I'm cheating, aloof, because she could be a little forbidding, especially with strangers. And um, third, Angelica. This is her much adored daughter with her lover, Duncan Grant. Um, Angelic was born Christmas Day, 1918. And legend, which is much published now, but legend has it that Duncan's lover, David Garnett, looked down on baby Angelica and said, she is beautiful. I want to marry her. And he did. <laughs> Later in life, Angelica wrote um, a brutally honest and and bitter memoir about her childhood. Um, and um, it, she was getting things off of her chest that upset her, so it's, a, it's not an entirely balanced view, and she would have agreed with that later on. But every Bloomsbury scholar is grateful for this wonderful record of her relationship with Vanessa, who could otherwise be a bit reticent. So. Um, and, uh, you might say, uh, you know, would, would Vanessa's feelings have been hurt at this uh, 
at this memoir, they probably would have. But when Leonard Wolf was uh, trying to um, decide whether to publish his novel, The Wise Virgins, uh, which was a pretty, pretty harsh view of the Bloomsbury Circle and of both Vanessa and Virginia, and Vanessa read the novel in manuscript and she thought it over and she responded kind of with this amazing sentence. She said, oh, it's fine. After all, feelings aren't very important. <laughs> so, it's for Vanessa. B is for Bloomsbury. It's a district in London. Um, it's now pretty she-she, but at a time it was slightly shabby. Um, and uh, the main thing it was, was appealingly far from Kensington, which she was trying to get away from as a young woman. So Vanessa chose, after her father's death, to move the family to um, 46 Gordon Square in Bloomsbury. And, um, but it, it also is uh, the name that the group of friends acquired. Her brother Toby Stephen came back from Cambridge and um, brought his friends over for special Thursday evenings. This would be about 1904, 1905. And um, so this is, the, this is the little kernel of the Bloomsbury group as we, as we now understand it. Um, and if you don't know much about the Bloomsbury group, that would include figures like the economist Maynard Keynes, uh, novelist E.M. Forster, biographer Lytton Strachey, um, Leonard Wolfe, um, who was a civil servant and then a writer, and Clive Bell, critic, and Saxon Sidney Turner, civil servant, and um, incredible opera fan. C is for Clive. Clive Bell was a, is an interesting character, and his, his biography is being finished at, at the moment, I think. Um, he was a sporting man, and um, his family had a little money, but uh, he, uh, so he was a little different. Um, um, but he was very, very interested in the arts, unlike his whole family. And so at Cambridge, his, you know, he, he couldn't believe the people he was meeting. And so he's kind of an interesting figure, straddles two worlds. Um, because of Clive, there was very good wine that, you know, available at meals and things like that. Vanessa didn't know quite what to do with him. He was clearly very interested in her, and she rejected at least two marriage proposals from him. And such was the formality of the period that when she rejected his second marriage proposal, the letter was still addressed to Dear Mr. Bell. Um, but there was a, uh, an ill-fated trip to Turkey in 1906, and, and in November, Vanessa's younger brother Toby died, and he'd been the great friend that had united um, the men in the group. And she accepted Clive's next proposal two days later. Um, so, you can make of that, which you will. But, um, another C is Charleston Farmhouse, which Vanessa uh, and Duncan moved to in 1916 after they had to leave the house there and before Asham. D is for Duncan Grant, who was her lover, her collaborator, and her life partner. They were lovers only a brief period, but it was, uh, she was in love with them the rest of her life. E is for eminent Victorians. Has anyone heard of this book, which used to be canonical? A few people, yes. 1918, it's Lytton Strait, she wrote four tiny irreverent biographies of major Victorian figures like General Gordon and, and Florence Nightingale, and it was cheeky, it was shocking, it was completely new, and it introduced Bloomsbury sensibilities uh, to a circle beyond the London avant-garde. E is also for emotional labor. Um, when you are a young woman growing up in a Victorian home, it falls on you to do a lot of things. You might have to learn how to, um, uh, to shop, to uh, direct to the servants, to plan the meals, to talk them over with the cook in the morning. But what you also had to do in the case of Julia Stephen, her mother, in the case of Stella Duckworth, her um, half-sister, and in the case of Vanessa Bell, you took on the emotional labor of handling the men in the household and their, uh, their depressions, their anxieties. Emotional labor was a big part of Vanessa Bell's youth. And because of that, I think she was very eager to create that studio time for herself. F is for the Friday Club, which she founded in 1905, kind of as a counter-movement to her brother Toby's Thursday evenings at 46 Gordon Square. It was an art discussion group that also put on exhibitions. 
G is for grief, which I think we might bring up again later. Vanessa's life was very deeply affected by loss, um, most notably the terrible loss of her son in the Spanish Civil War in July 1938. And she said, um, I will be cheerful, but I'll never be happy again. And I think that was true. H is for Hyde Park Gate. It was the, her childhood home in South Kensington, hideously built onto by Leslie Stephen, her father, when he moved in, when he married. Um, but uh, in that house, one London house in Kensington, 11 family members and seven to eight servants. I is for interior decoration, which you're probably going to talk about a little. No. Okay. Uh, one, of the, one of the main sources of, of interest um, for her and her friends, they decorated Charleston. They, um, I think I'm going to mention Ohm again in a few minutes, but interior decoration was a very big part of Vanessa's artistic output and um, preoccupation. And I is also for Italy, which is almost the opposite of gray London. And Vanessa was a very sensual woman, and she loved the warmth and the sunlight of Italy, and she loved the art, and she loved the food and the wine and being with her friends, and there are many lovely late paintings of Italy, which are, I think, now beginning to get their due. I hope so. Um, Jay is for Julia, her sainted mother, uh, Julia Duckworth. She, she had modeled for artists when she was young. She was a very beautiful woman. She could be stern but she had a wonderful sense of humor. She used to, when people left after she had entertained them for tea, she would often do a little comic riff on, uh, on them for her children. But she was very much mistress of all she surveyed. She managed that whole household um, very well. And yet she was often away nursing. And although her husband complained about this division of her time and energies, it was clearly her passion and something that she insisted on doing. She was away a lot nursing, and she also visited the poor and did the other things that was expected of Victorian women of the time. She was highly intelligent and polished. She was a more politically conservative um, than you might expect. She opposed women's suffrage uh, vocally. And Jay is also for Julian, Vanessa's beloved son. K is for Keynes, her dear friend who wrote The Economic Consequences of the Peace at Charleston in 1919. Um, on his breaks, he would scrupulously weed the garden with a little penknife. Um, and I think more should be made, perhaps, of the economic consequences of Maynard Keynes because he funneled money to Duncan, his former lover, for most of Duncan's life. L is for laughter. Quentin said, my earliest memories are of her summer laughter. She is very funny. The letters are funny and entertaining. She really exercised a, a, a now perhaps lost, of letter, uh, lost art of letter writing. M is for the Memoir Club, which we're also very grateful for. When Vanessa and Virginia sensed that the group was splintering a little, their interests, they were moving further apart in the 20s, um, and some of them were spending more time in the country and less time in London, um, they founded uh, a group to get people to uh, uh, come together and share their memories and so forth. And they were also really, really hoping to get Desmond McCarthy, their friend, to finally write a, his book, his great book. It didn't, didn't happen. N is for no, because her powers of negation in order to protect her studio time are legion. Yeah. O is for the Omega Workshop, which is a, um, a pre-war uh, venture headed by Roger Fry, mostly pre-war, a scheme to help artists make money. They sold furniture, they um, sold pottery, they took design commissions. Uh, it was very influential. And um, P is for the Post-Impressionist exhibitions of 1910 and 1912, in which Roger Fry showed the work of Cezanne, Matisse, and Picasso for the first time in London and um, completely shocked the, um, the public there, a little bit like the Armory Show in New York City, the same sort of situation. Q is for Quentin Bell, her son, and uh, my friend and benefactor, in that he uh, uh, allowed me to enter the archives and to uh, edit his mother's letters. R is for Roger Fry, the artist, the critic, the art promoter. He uh, gave wonderfully influential lectures, popularizing modernist art for people who were, um, for whom that was very new. And, um, and he was also Vanessa's lover. Uh, for a um, couple years in there. S is for St. Ives, where Vanessa and Virginia spent their childhood summers from 1882 until their mother died. Um, uh, 
place that they uh, went back to a lot in memory. And of course, uh, to the lighthouse commemorates that um, in Virginia Woolf's work. T is for triangle, because the love triangle is a central Bloomsbury formation. Um, Vanessa, this is, I'm just naming a few, Vanessa, Virginia, and Clive, uh, Vanessa, Duncan, Grant, and David Garnett, Lytton, Carrington, and Rafe. Has anyone seen the movie Carrington? It is, you know, it's about this famous love trying, these artists and writers. Um, Maynard, Duncan, and Lytton. They, it was a, actually a very interesting and kind of a, um, you'd think it would break up relationships to work in triangles, but in fact it was very stable and you kept, you kept people close to you by moving them in different positions in the triangle. <laughs> T is also for typos because I was just looking at my book and was reminded of a few. They creep in everywhere. I'm a very careful editor, but they crept in. Most recently, in my book of letters, I noticed that I have Queen Victoria buried slightly before her death. I did, <laughs> yes. I did catch one right before publication. It was in a caption. Uh, it was that there was a picture that included George Mallory, the climber. And I said, George Mar Mallory, the climber. A favorite, uh, he modeled, and he was a favorite of the Bloomsbury men and died climbing Mr. Everest. <laughs> <laughs> Not at least a problem. U is for unspoken, for deep waters. Vanessa could be very reserved, even what we might call repressed. She had a placid exterior and she channeled a lot, a lot of emotion into her art. Um, she kept long self-protective self silences, especially around her daughter's uh, parentage. She didn't tell her until she was 17, hence the bitter memoir, that her father was Duncan Grant and not Clive Bell. Um, when you hold everything in like that, sometimes you have terrific breakdowns, and occasionally she would have a, a meltdown of some sort, and that's, but she, kept it together. Um, v is for Virginia. And a lot has been written in the last 10 years about, uh, about their relationship, about the rivalry and so forth. But really, they were, they were also very dear friends and each other's longest term rival and supporter. And um, they helped hold each other together, I would say. Um, Venice illustrated her stories and made beautiful book covers for her Hogarth Press books. X is for ex-lovers. There really are none in Bloomsbury. Um, or rather, your friends become your lovers, and then your lovers become your friends. So these transitions, uh, if you might imagine that they were, I'm describing them as fairly smooth and drama-free, you'd be wrong. They were, uh, <laughs> there was a lot of drama, but it was mostly in their youth. And that brings me to why, which is for youth. Um, Vanessa had a wonderful youth. She went from being a straight-laced Victorian girl through a very wild period in London in the early 20th century. Um, you know, and the uh, story is that at one pre-war party, her costume came loose and she danced naked to the waist, which is, she was leading a life that would have been unrecognizable to her parents. And Z, I was going to be very clever and come up with something, but I have nothing, so it's just the end. Thank you. Yes, please. So, for Vanessa Bell, the artist. We've had the woman, we now have the artist. And I think we have some pictures. We do. Of course, because she was a painter. Where is my little clicker? Here it comes. It's coming. Thank you. Sure. That was spectacular. Oh, we have to clap, clap again because we can. <laughs> again, it's just such a wonderful pleasure to finally meet Regina face to face because she did write in our very beautiful catalog for the Dalit show, which is about to be reprinted, she said, drawing attention to a potential sales opportunity. Um, 
but she, of course she's a wonderful writer and wrote about one of the paintings we're going to be looking at uh, this afternoon, Oranges and Lemons, an essay called Love Actually, which is witty, insightful, graceful, all the things that you have just seen her do right here for you. Um, I was lucky enough to curate with my colleague Ian Desjardins the Vanessa Bell show at Dulwich. And, you know, I was, I was really struck when I was invited to come here by the title of the session, which is Bloomsbury Muse. And, and the reason I was struck by it is that this is exactly what we were trying to um, shift in, in the exhibition. Bell was famously beautiful. You can see her as a teenager here um, looking exquisite, which she did without any effort whatsoever. Um, but she was, in fact, much more than a muse, and she keeps getting put back into that role of a muse to other people's talent, whereas, in fact, what became immediately obvious to us when we, when we dug into her remarkable paintings is that she was actually an artist, not a muse, and that she was really um, such a pivotal figure in British art, serving as a living link between um, the past in British art and the present that she inherited in the 20th century. She turned 20 uh, in 1900, so uh, 20 or 21 in 1900. Quick math. 21, I think. 21. 21, yes. Um, and so really is, a, you know, a classic figure in the modern age in, in Britain. Um, but she was a generator of ideas, not, not simply an inspirer. She saw the point in French modernism and was able to absorb it and actually express it with her hand uh, on the painting surface uh, in a way that others could only theorize about. And there's been great privileging of the legacies of Roger Fry and her husband Clive Bell, but um, as Hannah Leeper, one of our other essayists, has made clear, that those ideas were developed in concert with an artist, Vanessa Bell, who could actually do those things and could absorb those legacies of French modernism and translate them into an idiom all her own that we argue then went on to change British art forever and opened the door to everyone from Howard Hodgkins to David Hockney to you name it. Um, British art was never the same after Vanessa Bell got her hands on it. And also in many ways, um, a much tougher uh, artist than Duncan Grant, to whom she is frequently um, compared. She, I'm just going to show you a picture. Well, this is her um, after she's just gotten out of art school. She's, she's um, uh, you know, a few years before she was trained at, at the Royal Academy and also at the Slade. And then, um, you know, so was able to do really anything she wanted with a paintbrush. Um, this is the self-portrait that she did in 1915. Uh, which shows really how she was determined to have people take the measure of her, not for her beauty, which she kind of defaces strangely in this portrait, doing this strange thing with her nose that looks rather porcine, and taking this very unengratiating expression on her face. She looks rather cross and impatient, and the look on her face is very appraising and insightful. Um, the shoulder is cocked in a slightly combative, uh, almost pugilistic stance. She's made her body, body rather <clears throat> cumbersome and awkward. There's a little, little bit of a linebacker there. And yet, um, you know, she's, she's also, um, you know, beautiful and powerful and strong in a very modern way. This, uh, all of this glorious later modern work that would come out of her was a choice. So one of the things we want to look at is the work that she made before she is really infused by French post-impressionism. She was, having been at the Royal Academy and taught by John Singer Sargent and very conversant with the work of Whistler, for example, you can really see this in this earlier painting, Iceland Poppies, which comes about uh, six years before the self-portrait that I just showed you. Um, these incredibly subtle, uh, almost invisible brushstrokes that just this create this luminous surfaces, the way that that light is just held in that bowl, the sense of stillness and melancholy, exquisite restraint. It's, it is a very feminine uh, picture, I think, uh, with an almost allegorical coding of meaning that is much, really much more about the, the 19th century than it is about the 20th, but an exquisite example of her work. She is able to move from that in a manner of just a few years to this um, Studland Beach, which is really arguably, I suppose, her masterpiece, although there are so many, it's hard to choose. Um, what you can see here is that she's chosen a deliberately minimalizing way of approaching the subject matter. She's reduced everything to flat areas of color. She has 
um, created this extraordinary diagonal that kind of bisects the picture and does something remarkable from a compositional point of view. And as Regina remarked, she was absolutely a formalist. But it also estranges the mother-child or nanny-child uh, figure. There's some dis dispute and discussion as to what it actually is being uh, portrayed in the lower left-hand corner. But that those figures are stranded on the other side of this white diagonal form from the other cluster of figures that are that are in the back, and we can see, you know, several formal decisions have been made to make this composition more arresting, like moving the bathing tent to the water's edge, rather than, of course, it would have traditionally sat not on the edge of the water but further back up the beach. So she's played games with reality here in order to build, sort of architecturally build a space that holds together really with bands of iron, it has this incredible tensile um, quality to it as a composition. It also speaks, I think, in a way that is truly pioneering of female experience. Uh, when we look even at Mary Cassatt's paintings, which give us insight into um, her experience of motherhood, what, what you're seeing here is something that's a lot tougher, which is really talking about uh, the loneliness that some women feel in the early uh, moments of motherhood, the sense of being stranded, perhaps, with the child. This could have been more accentuated in, in um, uh, Vanessa's uh, experience because her sister was having a very hot and heavy flirtation with her husband at the time. So I think she did truly feel quite despairing at this point um, in her life. But anyway, it's a masterpiece formally, and I think it's psychologically a masterpiece, and it's one of the reasons we have to really look to Belle as a major 20th century European figure. Um, she was called the most important women painter in Europe in her, in her day, but then, you know, as time has gone by, her reputation has been somewhat eclipsed by that of other Bloomsbury members, and of course by her very famous sister, so we've, we had rather lost sight of that. Um, I just wanted to quickly show you this beautiful little study um, which comes before uh, Studland Beach because I find it so captivating. We found this, unfortunately, too late to put in the show. We found it the week that the show opened. But what you see here is this sense of the beach, the ocean side, as this surging space where sky and sea come together and sort of seem to sweep up the solitary figure. This is more than a decade before Virginia Woolf writes, um, writes The Waves at Orge the Lighthouse. And I think, you know, one of the things that one really wants to tease out looking at Belle is to, what were the influences that ran back and forth between the sisters. At the time that Belle made this painting, her sister was still an essayist in London, had not yet written her novels. But that, that shared experience that they had in childhood of the freedom that they had at the beach in St. Ives, what that meant to them. Um, particularly growing up in a very patriarchal household, what it meant to like run free and wild and how those memories were so important for both of them throughout their lives. I find this a very beautiful and, and poignant work. It's in London in a private collection. To leave it to Debo to chip it out of there someday. <laughs> of course, she painted um, Virginia many times and um, always with this very enigmatic sense of the mystery of the subject with the face, facial features obscured. This could be simply a formal device, um, because as you can see here, what she's mostly interested in, if you squint a little, it becomes an abstract painting that kind of spirals around this, these two points of the hands and the red wedge of wool in her lap. But it's also a picture, I think, that suggests to me um, the unknowability of another person. And of course, Sigmund Freud's ideas were very fashionable at this time, the sort of mystery of the self. And these, of course, were issues that were very, very interesting to Virginia as well and were explored profoundly in her writing. But I think that the two of them you know, shared these interests and perhaps the way that she uh, depicts her sister is redolent of that. Roger Fry, F is for Fry. We've heard a little bit about him. Uh, this picture, we think, was made in a, in a um, hotel room uh, when they were in one of their trysts. And um, it's, what's interesting about the picture is that she has sort of taken on his painterly style to paint him. So it's a, it's a very witty picture of him getting his own treatment um, uh, as a subject. And they, Vanessa met the world to Roger. He was deeply in love with her for many, many years. It's arguable whether he ever really got over his attachment to her. But I think what's interesting, and Regina and I have spoken about this, is the way that I mean, when you read Fry's letters, um, 
to Vanessa, you have this mounting feeling of panic because he's like, I love you and you're everything to me and you're a genius, you're a goddess and you're up on, you're a golden creature, you're a bowl brimming with light. And as you kind of page through this, you start to get kind of annoyed because like her view would have been, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm an artist, I'm a you know practical person in my own right. And what are you going on about? And it becomes more and more syrupy and treacly. And at a certain point she, Put an end to it and said, "Look, this is just not working for me." And by this time, she was starting to fall in love with Duncan Grant. But she had the guts to. She had the sort of sense of self to actually step away from something that was going to absorb her energy and distract her from what she was really interested in. And that's the thing that I find so remarkable. She was very clear: "No, I'm not going down this path. I'm not going to become this man's conventional wife. I'm not going to take care of this person that's saying you have to take care of me. You have to complete me." She was like, "Thank you very much. I'll pass." And yet, to the credit of her genius, she actually did remain his friend for the rest of her life. That's a hard thing to pull off. Here's uh, Fry's beautiful drawing of Vanessa Bell painting. But, you know, I include it here. It's charming, of course, but it is also, to my eyes, slightly incriminating of a sort of somewhat infantilizing view of her as a, as a darling creature. Um, uh, perhaps he didn't quite catch the ferocious measure of her that we see in that first self-portrait that we looked at. And she knew it. Instead, she went for the wild and woolly Duncan Grant that we see here with what appears to be a scarf or something draped over his head. And what, um, what Duncan is doing is making a self-portrait. So what we're seeing in front of you is the mirror looking back at us. And then you can see down below the top of the head where he's actually making the painting. But um, right around this time was when it was a Canadian feminist actually came over and slashed the Roque B. Venus. So there was, it, that was very much in the newspapers. And, um, so I, I do feel that this is a bit of Rope Venus, of course, having um, the, the nude, resplendent, delicious-looking naked lady lying there looking in the mirror, and we see her face, but then we see the back side of her body as well. I, I can't help but think that she was thinking about that picture when she made this painting of her, her lover, and I can't recall, Regina, if she was already his lover by this point. But it's a very kind of rumpled and, uh, you know, a very unusual painting of a man. Um, it's, it's very affectionate. They're very much sharing the tools of the trade. She's painting him while he's painting himself. It's typical circles within circles. But, you know, this shower of cascading pigment that's coming out of his head like a Krakatoa, <laughs> you know, a molten kind of color. Um, it's so full of affection and shared, um, shared interests, you know, and I think it explains really the nature of their bond, which is that they both love to paint. That was the number one thing in their life and they could give each other the uh, space to do that. But anyway, I think this is a very important feminist work of art as well, because I think it is sort of anti-authoritarian male is being pictured here and, and a true colleague, an equal. Um, they made many wonderful things together and there's, there is a period of time when their paintings are almost indistinguishable. In fact, we got one wrong in our show, which will be corrected in the next edition. But, um, uh, you know, they both painted the model this day, and I'm sorry I couldn't find the Grant slide that goes with it, but Grant's version of this woman with these sort of cinnamon buns and hairdo that she has is really quite conventional. The model is turned towards him and is smiling in a kind of ingratiating way. Belle is much more interested in this kind of cross, tired, you know, maybe her feet are sore, maybe she's had enough. She's certainly not putting out for Vanessa. She's looking to the side, she's bored as could be. There's like virtually no engagement with her at all. But that interests Vanessa and she records exactly that. She doesn't change her to, to look at her and pretend to be in any other space. In other words, Belle is inquiring into her condition rather than simply making her perform for her. And that contrast is really very interesting again in terms of how she paints women, how she understands women as subjects. This is a fabulous pairing. We were able to find the one on the left had previously been used as a roof of a chicken coop at Charleston and then was found and one of her friends pled with her to, um, to fix it up and it was restored and now we were able to twin it with Molly McCarthy. And you can see again, if you close your eyes a little bit, you can see the Molly McCarthy, the, the one on the left is really almost an abstraction too. It's this kind of this fanning out of these shapes. Uh, that you then sort of experience the excitement of that visually before you're even necessarily engaging with the subject matter. And of course, in the one on the right, she's exploding the form into these facets. She's obviously been observing cubism. Um, but it, you, know, you wouldn't mistake this for a, for a Picasso. It has its own very 
uh, earthy color palette. It has a certain sense of touch that is Bell's, un you know, unmistakably. She made the first, many have argued, and it's, it's still being debated, the finer points of it, but it's pretty clear that she most likely made the first abstract pictures in England. Um, she w was never one, she would not stay with abstraction um, long term. She loved the world of things too much, but uh, uh, she did take that bold step, and uh, it was influenced also by her increasing interest in you know, interior design and textile design and so on. It's not sure, she's not an abstractionist in the vein of Amelievich, who has a whole um, uh, philosophical basis for his investigations into abstraction and, and, and signs and meaning. Um, Bell is really joyously engaged with the decorative aspects of it. And the one at right is a cut paper that's been painted and then reassembled. Beautiful, beautiful things. Um, but oranges and lemons, this, is, um, this was painted, this was Regina's um, subject in her essay, and uh, it was painted on the occasion of Grant um, sending her a, a bouquet, basically, of oranges and lemons. Those were the days, eh? Because I, from Tunisia. So that was something that one could do back then. I don't know why we can't do that now, but anyway. Um, this box arrived and of course she immediately set about painting it and she writes a letter to Grant saying, you know, against all best modern theories, I'm painting it because it's beautiful. And of course one wasn't supposed to paint things that were beautiful anymore, um, but she was asserting really the importance of visual intelligence that she and, and Duncan really understood what painting was about and these theorists like her husband and Fry around them, it was all very well, but they actually, she and, and Grant had this secret language between them of, of how to actually make it modern. Um, also, uh, Ballet Russe is a big, uh, big thing in London at around this time, and Bloomsbury is very engaged with that. And, and basically, you know, that work in Nijinsky's performances signaling a kind of re release of the body and freedom from restraint and these kind of wild, you know, linking back into pagan ritual and so on, all these characteristics of um, the Ballet Russe that were so delightful to, to all of the Bloomsbury members. They were all very engaged with it. We have wonderful pictures of... Um, uh, Vanessa and Molly McCarthy leaping around in their skinnies in the, it, at Gordon Square, probably Duncan Grant taking the pictures so that they could see what the body looked like moving and they would try different positions out. There's also an overmantle for a, for a, for a mural uh, study that, that has these same kinds of abstracted figures, very much obviously in, influenced by Matisse as well, who she had, of course, as Regina said, had experienced in the, the shows of 1910 and 1912. But, you know, very much on the vanguard in that regard. And uh, bathers in the landscape. We were talking about neo-pagan child-rearing earlier. Um, this is in response to the neo-pagan festival, which took place uh, in the Norfolk uh, countryside uh, at, at this time. And it was um, Rupert Brooke at the helm and the Olivier sisters and, and other people coming being naked in the landscape, cooking out of doors, living out of doors. Belle, ever the practical person, of course, rented a room in a farmhouse close by and slept <laughs> in a nice warm bed. But other than that, she was, um, you know, she was very much involved with this experiment and was very impressed with the younger women there that were, that were sort of pushing the edge in terms of uh, the freedoms permitted to women and men to be together in new ways. We've, mentioned, we've talked about um, interior design, but of course it, we have to mention that part of her interest in abstraction led her to textile design, and she's one of the great textile designers of the 20th century. These are her beautiful works here, which we also included in the show, and book design, just for you to have a look at that. To the lighthouse being one of my favorite book designs, and in fact the theme of the lighthouse, and one of the most touching things for me, um, that I came across in all the studies was seeing the, the ceramic fireplace surround that Vanessa did for Virginia when she was getting towards the end of her life. And she makes the fireplace surround that has the lighthouse at the top of it. And it's like this one can sense really what she was trying to say was to give Virginia always that beacon of their childhood as the lighthouse in St. Ives, that they shared that kind of experience of unmitigated joy and freedom together at the beginning of their life as children in St. Ives. And to, you know, to keep the lighthouse always before you in your darkest hour in Virginia, of course, had many. Um, but yeah, to the lighthouse cover, one of the great, um, great book jacket designs ever. Um, towards the end of her life, 
Uh, Vanessa Bell's radicality as an artist does kind of seep away, but she makes many beautiful studies uh, of scenes that she encounters in her travels, like this beautiful buttery picture on the Seine, which, uh, which is hanging in one of the colleges actually in, uh, in Cambridge. But, um, you know, exquisite tonalities, the whole thing is, is folded together so beautifully. Um, some of the work becomes more decorative as she gets older in her studies, and you can see she's just larking about. It doesn't have the same ferocious intensity of what I call the extraordinary decade, which is kind of 1904 to 1914, but there are delicious pleasures to discover there along the way. Likewise, her many paintings of her family, um, like her daughter here reading, and I just love the fact that those, pi those pigeon toes and the fact that she's sort of slumped over this book in a rather ungainly pose, and obviously she's very interested in her daughter's inner experience again. She's not making her daughter an object of delectation in any kind of conventional way. She's seeing her as a person having her own thoughts, and I, I find that, you know, very touching here. It's obviously, you can see that it's most likely an art book as well that she's reading. But what we're going to remember best about Vanessa, I think, as time goes on, is the ferocious embrace of freedom. Just that this, this, it's a design for a, a headboard of a bed, and it was a headboard that was commissioned for Mary Hutchison, who was her husband's lover. So <laughs> there's, there's this wonderful little note where she says, um, it's not at all really what Mary asked for, but I've done it anyway. So she, you know, like, it's, it's a good, it's a good stiff middle finger in, in a way as a work of art. It really is because she's kind of, this is the bed where, you know, Mary will, you know, bed her husband. But I don't really think she minded that much. I'm not sure that she was all that interested. I think she was deeply hurt by Virginia's run at Clive, but not so much by Mary Hutchinson's. I think after the thing with Virginia, I think she just thought, oh, do your thing. Like, she, she, had, she had her paintings to do. She had Duncan Grant and Roger Fry and all these other things, but she was quite, quite happy to stay married to him, but, but not getting dramatic. And we all know, ladies, how much energy can be wasted by women in their romantic entanglements. And, you know, does he love me? Does he not? Is he treating me properly? Blah, blah, blah. Vanessa just pushed flush. When everything's got, I mean, we're learning more and more as we move into the 21st century about the, the, the merits of simply thinking about something else. And um, I think she was really leading the charge here with not going deep. You know, shallow is the new deep, I always say to my friends. Because, you know, who's to say it's better to peel the onion and be, you know, weeping into your Kleenex when you could just be simply getting on with the business of life? And I think that's one of the, one of the legacies of Belle that's most extraordinary is that she did just that, creating what's without doubt one of those remarkable bodies of work of, of the uh, 20th century. So thank you so much for your attention. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Sarah, that was absolutely fantastic and wonderful to see so many pictures. Thank you both very much. Um, now, we, we've not got a hugely long session left to us, um, but I think I'm going to chip in here very briefly because obviously what you've both been saying has, um, has triggered all kinds of memories. And I think perhaps the thing that, um, that reminded me more of my grandmother than anything else. Um, she died when I was six, by the way, so although I do remember her, um, the memories are very are faint. But the thing that I'll take with me is about the way that they painted together, that she and Duncan worked together. And the reason that I remember that, above all, is because the two of them painted me. Um, and uh, this is part memory and it's part appeal because I always take every opportunity. I was painted in the studio at Charleston in Sussex and I sat there for my portrait. I was paid sixpence an hour. I was very fidgety. I did not want to be painted. But thankfully, Vanessa um, took the trouble to put me at my ease by getting me to look at all the pictures on the walls and tell stories about them and I had to invent those stories for myself, and she would nudge me to, to tell tales, whatever came into my head, whatever they triggered. And I think that's a lovely moment for me that I'll always remember of the imaginative relationship that she had with her grandchildren and obviously with her children as well. Um, 
But I can remember the two of them painting side by side. Now, I'm lucky enough to own the painting that Duncan uh, did of me on that occasion. And I'm wearing my best dress brought back from New York, Bloomingdale's, by my father, who had recently visited New York. And I'm wearing this little violet, lavender-colored dress. Two yards to the left, Vanessa painted a slightly different angle on me. I don't know where that painting is, and it's out there somewhere. So I'm going to take today as an opportunity to say, if anyone ever comes across that picture, let me know. Little girl in the studio at Charleston wearing a lavender-colored frock from Bloomingdale's, circa 1960. And, um, and we'll see where we can take it from there, if anybody ever hears of it. So yes, the two of them painted together very much. And my father actually described them as being almost like two old donkeys, side by side, eating from the same manger, <laughs> content to have that um, sort of quiet companionship. And it was a companionship and a working relationship that endured for, for both their lives. Um, long after the sex had died, long after the relationship um, of a physical kind had, uh, had drifted away, that com artistic companionship was absolutely fundamental to them both. And, um, and certainly it, uh, it, it was an enduring one. But um, in the time we've got left, I'd love you both to reflect perhaps on um, who was the greater painter, Duncan or Vanessa, um, and also perhaps to look even more controversially at the relationship between Virginia and Vanessa, because Virginia, until recently, <laughs> perhaps until Sarah's show, when everyone discovered that I was Vanessa Bell's daughter, they'd say, oh yeah, who's that? So I'd say, Virginia Woolf's sister. And they go, ah, yeah. yes. Now I'm beginning to find that people are saying, yes, I know who Vanessa Bell was. Can, can we have some reflections on those relationships from you both? the question you asked about who's the better painter, mm -hmm. um, because I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that it's Vanessa, mm -hmm. uh, because I feel, and, and, and not that I don't love a good romp with, not, with, you know, with Grant, but, <laughs> but, I, but I do feel that there's a way in which Grant has a, a, an impulse to be, to, there's an easiness about his touch, like he's so elegant, he's so naturally graceful, his hand, that in a way he's kind of his own worst enemy because it can become decorative very easily. Whereas I feel like that Vanessa is actually at pains to try and obstruct herself from doing that. At her best, Sarah. Yeah, at her I best. remember when you yeah. first came to me to yes. talk about the show and said, yeah, everything that was otherwise we talked about. <laughs> and my reaction was, well, I hope, I'm thrilled that you're doing this show yes. at Dulwich, but please use the good pictures. Yeah, I mean, the good pictures being <laughs> that kind obvious. of extraordinary decade of like 1904 yeah. to 1914, where she's just white hot. She's experimenting with everything. She's not trying to ingratiate herself with the viewer. The brush strokes are furious and energetic. And there's no easiness, there's no facility. The female subjects are often sullen or, or, or you know, um, awkward. I mean, when I think of things like the iris tree portrait, for example, yeah. this great yeah. beast in orange and red, you know, it's kind of in, in this traffic jam of color. Um, there, there's nothing, there's no facility in it. There's no, like, gracefulness. It's yeah. tough. And tough, anger tough, tough. as well. And I sometimes. think, yeah, well, I think, I mean, Ian conjectures in his essay that, that there was this release from the propriety of the father's home when he finally dies in 1904 and she could move to Bloomsbury. It's like she's shot from a rocket for the first decade of yeah. that freedom. Yeah. And I think you feel that in the pictures. And Regina, what do you think about the, um, the Virginia-Vanessa relationship now? Where, where do we stand? Well, I know it's a tough question. Um, but they made up their minds from day one, didn't they? That one, yes, I'm going to exactly. be the writer and you're going to be the painter. Yeah, and that made everything possible. Yeah, I mean, once you but, have but um, uh, oh, can we now move Vanessa out from under Virginia's shadow? I certainly hope so. And I think the show did yeah. so much for that. Yeah. I hear people talking differently, oh, you know, good. in the press. <laughs> Finally, there was a, for many years, there was sort of anti-Bloomsbury bias, in, in, especially in the English press. Yes. Um, and it goes way back. Mm. <laughs> and I think the very groupness of Bloomsbury is part of the problem, mm. because, you know, as uh, 
I think it was Clive who, who, who came up with this formulation, but because they were known to be kind of connected to each other and there were about, you know, eight or ten of them, um, if one member of Bloomsbury kind of, you know, wrote a critical review of your, of your painting exhibition, you imagined that all of Bloomsbury had, you know, sneered at your painting, and there was the sense of them being this, you know, malefic cobble, as we yeah. said. So, um, but Walt made the backlash. great career move of committing mm. suicide, didn't she? <laughs> it's been very good for her, yes. Yeah, but, um, um, but Vanessa had her own grief to contend with. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. It would be interesting if we could understand better. And I, I would extend her greatness through the mid-twenties, at least. Yeah. I think that stuff's fantastic. Yeah. You know, the, the, the view to the window, those window shots, yes. you know, across. Mm -hmm. uh, I, think they're, I think they're magnificent. Um, but the, her contraction, which began before Julian's death, it's, you know, and so forth, she contracted as an mm -hmm. artist. She sort yeah. of got quieter and quieter. Mm -hmm. And those, those formal issues that led her to um, make a Studland B to something, to flatten forms, this kind of, it, it, she brought it down to the tiniest little, where will this pink smudge go on, mm -hmm. on that? And um, yeah, the work suffered, I think, from that kind of obsessive, obsessive focus. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they get, they get more drier. conventionally descriptive too. Of, yes, that's of true. Space. And, mm -hmm. I mean, some of the pictures that we've looked at today, you can you can you can read them as a flat pattern, and, or you mm -hmm. can read them as a portrait. It's mm -hmm. it's really um, they're really take, they've taken that right to the edge. Whereas by the time we get to the artist's daughter reading or whatever, there's a more conventional recessional space, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's just it seems more like illustrative rather than yes. formally experimental. You know, and I don't, you know, it's, it's really a puzzle why mm -hmm. there was such a retraction in that way. And I think it's partly to do with her isolation. I think in the so. More than her children. Yeah. It's good to, to note that her most extraordinary period of experimentation, that white hot period, is right when she's having babies every few years. <laughs> yeah. So the idea, that, yeah, the idea that she was derailed by motherhood, which, which floats around mm -hmm. there, is actually the opposite is true. There's something about create her creativity and her sense of force as a person mm -hmm. that is really unleashed by motherhood and it's inspiring for that which reason. actually brings me on to the next yeah. i wanted to, to raise with you which is um vanessa and domesticity mm -hmm. now she kind of cracks the mold there doesn't yes. she because yeah. one tends to think of a, a woman artist is how does she escape from right. the the trammels of yes. motherhood of having mm -hmm. to cook the meals and be the domestic goddess yes. and the rest yes. Vanessa, in a way, just embraces it. She turns the housework into the artwork. Mm -hmm. She sort of turns the instead yeah. of you can't yeah. beat them, join them, you know. So she mm -hmm. kind of turns the household into a work of art, of course, by painting Absolutely. it. Yeah. But also, I think radicalizes the space of family. And mm -hmm. in your, the letters that you've read so beautifully make that really clear that the home is not the, the obedience institute mm -hmm. under the patriarchal leader. It, it's it's like an experimental zone where people are making art and writing things and performing plays and mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of rules and regulations and structure for the kids to hold on to. I imagine they must oh, have no. driven them half mad no. <laughs> because not at all. I mean, she looked she to a degree that is kind of unsettling. Uh, she seems to see them as sort of collaborators, mm -hmm. the children. Why They're is almost it unsettling? Like, well, because one does feel that children need some sort of sense of their adults, kind of. <laughs> There's something you know, a little chaotic about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that she's experienced them either as aesthetic objects of delectation, mm -hmm. how yeah. beautiful they are, and oh, yes. you know, his eyelashes and what it looks mm -hmm. like with the light on them. And you're wondering, you know, are any of these children getting a proper meal? <laughs> and is anyone making sure these children are getting educated? I found myself responding like yeah. that, but that may say My more about me. My father said ours was an unruly home. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And did, whether they ate is a question. Yes. There's, a, there's a letter from Vanessa to Virginia, and uh, the boys were going to spend the night there for it's you know, a or horrifying like letter. And this letter is so funny. And she's, you know, they're they're going to be fine with some cocoa made with mostly water, and uh, it goes and on from bread. there. It's just yeah. some bread, maybe a little treacle. It was no food. You're covered like vegetables. <laughs> no protein. Yeah. But it was a different time, and I also yes. wanted to mention that they. She had some help. Yeah. Um, she was mortified. This um, 
the letter I'm passing around is, you know, she's talking about one of the Olivier's who's deciding to have children with, with not hiring a nurse at all, mm -hmm. you know, and that was, it was it shocking. Was clearly <laughs> insane. Yeah. And she was very upset when Olivia decided yeah. to go it alone. It was part of the, of course, it was part of the post-war economy that you couldn't, no. you know, hire a nanny as easily as you had before, but also that generation which they were doing it themselves. And for her, she thought, when are you going to paint? I mean, even, she says in this letter, even when I, had a nurse with Julie, and I know how hard it was for me to get any, any art done at all. But we look now and we see this magnificent string of paintings. So, yeah. Yeah. But Regina, um, in fact, talking about her as a correspondent, I mean, yes. uh, did you wish to um, celebrate an unknown side of Vanessa, that she was this wonderful, funny, mm -hmm. enlivening writer? And, and the letters are mm -hmm. absolutely marvelous. I would recommend mm -hmm. anyone to look at Regina's book. Mm -hmm. Or were you wanting to look at her as a writer because mm. of it shedding light on her as an artist? Mm. I mean, what was your approach? Your ch uh, how did you choose? I actually came at it from a, a, a completely different standpoint. When I was, um, uh, when I was looking for a master's uh, thesis, I thought, well, Louis de, Sal uh, uh, de Salvo, who has just yeah. died this week, um, Louis de Salvo edited um, Vita and Virginia's correspondence that had just come out, and I thought that's such a good idea. But really, Vanessa was a much more important influence in Virginia's life. And so I, I, I had met your parents on another visit, and I, I wrote to Quentin, and I said, why don't I edit uh, Vanessa's letters to Virginia? But your father was in hospital, and your mother got the letter, and you know, <laughs> so she's a much sterner character. And yeah, she, my mother, my oh yes, and she. She wrote back to me and she said, it would, this is a terrible idea. It would completely misrepresent Vanessa Bell, who had a wide range of interests and friends. And uh, so, no. And I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I was, I was young and brave, but I, I, it took me about three days to recover. And I wrote back and I said, point taken. Why don't I edit them all? Mm -hmm. And um, the timing was right. Because yeah, thank God you did that. Well, yeah. your, your father was quite ill. Yeah. And I think that they felt that um, it should be done now while he could help. Yes. Mm. And I happened to be the first to, to come in with that. So I had a, yeah. a lovely interview with, uh, with your parents and with Angelica, mm. and, um, uh, and, I, and I took it on. But that's, yeah. so, I, it, so initially I came at it from the relationships, uh, yeah. especially with Virginia. But she's a wonderful letter writer, mm -hmm. and that was... And you do you know, think she you know, should be more up. celebrated as a letter writer than... Um, well, mean, is, is her ability to write anywhere approaching her ability to, to paint? Or do we just think of it in a different way? I think we think of it in a different way, although I wish that um, some of the memoirs that she wrote were, were better known. The, the memoir on, on Virginia's childhood and so forth. Mm -hmm. You know, There's just something yeah. mostly that yeah. Wolf scholars uncover yeah. and think about, but that's one So let's stuff. just wind this up by yeah. seeing whether we can reflect on, on her, um, her meaning for us today. I mean, what, how should we be um, summing up Vanessa Bell's work as an artist today? I think you've sort of said it, Sarah, but uh, you know, let's I think conclude. She's a deeply inspiring figure for us today because really what, what she was so much on the front end of is ideas that are so important for us to, we're still grappling with them today, like the freedom for people to love each other the way that they want, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the redefinition, expanding view of what family can be, mm -hmm. uh, pacifism. For better or worse. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes. I know, I just worry about the vegetables. Saying. Yeah. You know, um, you know uh, uh, pacifism and, and the barbarism of war, her deep understanding of that um, mm -hmm. during the First World War and the Second. And her, well, there's, there's an incredible letter where she's writing, I can't remember to whom you'll, you will know, but um, about you know, the, the armistice has been declared and everyone's taken to the street and they're all jubilate, you know, in jubilation yeah. and they're mm -hmm. celebrating and she's just saying, she, you know, she went out and she looked at it, but it was just sickening to her that they could be celebrating after such a heinous waste of human life. And you know, that's typical of her independent mindedness. So she, makes, she doesn't get swept up in rhetoric uh, you know, she's very much keeping her own counsel and, and, and a very sort of astute observer of the world, the political world around her, independent thinker. But was you know, she a feminist? Can we, can we think of her as a feminist? Well, she wouldn't have probably called herself a feminist, but she just lived it. She didn't have to talk about it. Regina? Oh, I think she absolutely was a feminist. I don't know that she would have articulated it in quite yeah. that way, though. Yeah. 
Um, but she was always interested, uh, she and Virginia used to talk about uh, um, women who achieved things, you know, yes. women who are in the arts, women who are around doing things, women yeah. writers. They, yes, they were focused on what women could do um, yes. despite. And I think also, like, they came from a, a matrilineal line. I mean, the great aunt is Julia Margaret Cameron. So I That's think they right. both took great, particularly Vanessa perhaps, took great solace from this, mm -hmm. the fact that there was a line of great women behind them yes. too. And, you know, Vir Virginia tended to be more identified with Leslie mm -hmm. Stephen and, the, and mm -hmm. the, the letters side mm -hmm. of things. But I think it was very important to Vanessa. I mean, it is a noble lineage on both sides, oh, I guess. Absolutely. Of course, we always yeah. hear about the one daughter of... Uh, you know. Well, noble lineage is what I like to hear. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. I'm not a painter, but my, I have uh, a, a great sister who's a wonderful uh, artist designer, a mm -hmm. brother who's a wonderful artist. Yes, yes, and, and I and do my best yeah, on the, yeah. the, the writing front. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have to end it there. Have we got okay. time for a question or do we have to, we have to wind it up there? I think we so, okay. um, but there are obviously some books that you can all look at, and so I would thoroughly recommend. Everyone grab Regina's beautiful collected letters, because there you will find the real Vanessa. I mean, I've showed you the paintings, but you'll be shocked to see how vividly she comes to life in that book, and it's, uh, it's just simply splendid. So, yes, stampede to the back table. Well, Thank you, um, Virginia, Regina, and Sarah, for a, a witty, but I think a really important discussion to open the festival, um, and positioning Vanessa Bell as, as, as a radical, important artist. I think that line, British art was never the same after Vanessa Bell got her hands on it, is a good one. So please join me in thanking our speakers.